This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome uh, on behalf of the Gifford Lecture Committee and, of course, the University of Edinburgh uh, to the fourth in this series uh, of Gifford Lectures on the Age of Pluralism. Um, I'm chairing this particular lecture tonight. Um, my name is uh, Tom Devine. I hold the Sir William Fraser Chair of Scottish History and Paleography in this university. Uh, but perhaps more pertinent to tonight's event, I am a, a member of the Gifford Committee who asked uh, and positively received from Professor Diana Eric the invitation which went out uh, some time ago. And as usual, the lecture this evening will be recorded uh, and will be available online on the Gifford website. So it's my very great pleasure to invite Professor Eck to give her fourth presentation in this very distinguished lecture theatre. Thank you, Professor Devine. There seems to be some special event that will happen here because there are two wine glasses on the front table this morning. I'm not sure what that's about. Anyway, it's very wonderful to be back for this fourth in the lecture series. Religious views of religious pluralism. My great teacher and mentor was a Scottish Presbyterian, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, who as a young man in the 1940s spent a good deal of time in India living in the city of Lahore, where he taught at a Christian college and where his colleagues and staff members and students were mostly Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs. Within a few years, that beautiful cosmopolitan city of Lahore, in pre-independence India anyway, had been seared by the agony of partition, the partition of India and Pakistan. But it was there that Smith developed an intellectual agenda for his life that would include deepening scholarship in Islamic studies, pioneering work in the comparative study of religion, and prophetic work in Christian theology. He later became the director of the Institute of Islamic Studies in McGill, and later still the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard. To him, it was clear that the gradually shrinking world would need new forms of thought adequate to the diversity and depth of human religious life. While he was himself a devout Christian, Smith did not want to speak of Christian theology, but rather of a Christian contribution to theology, articulating what Christians may know of God and faith from a Christian perspective, but well aware that Muslim, Hindu, and Sikh contributions are part of the same enterprise. Because the religious life of humankind is increasingly lived in the context of religious pluralism, he said, quote, any serious intellectual statement of the Christian faith must include some sort of doctrine of other religious ways, end quote. When Smith came to Harvard in 1961, he challenged the divinity faculty with an important question in his inaugural lecture, calling for new theological thinking that would take seriously the voices and visions of equally rigorous thinkers who are Muslim, Hindu, or Jewish. Quote, from now on, the articulation of our faith must take into account the world's religious vibrancy and the intellectual depth that the study of the world's religions reveals. I don't know how we will contend with these questions, he said, but I do know that from now on, these are the questions with which we must contend. He was right, of course. Now, nearly 50 years later, the world of theology has changed. Religious pluralism is not only the practical struggle of societies, of nations, and cities, as we've been discussing during the first three lectures. It is the challenge of religious people of every tradition struggling to make sense of this world of religious difference, not simply from the point of view of their lives as citizens of a common society, but from the perspective of their religious faith in the language of their religious faith. Does the serious encounter with another faith destabilize one's own, threaten one's own faith, relativize one's own faith, enrich one's own faith? These are the questions of the age of pluralism. 
Global awareness and religious encounter require of us new forms of religious thinking and leadership in all religious traditions. The age of pluralism needs its thinkers and its theologians and its religious leaders, those who articulate the faith of the community in the world in which we live today. And today I want to point to some of the theological thinking that will guide faith communities into this new age, looking primarily at Muslims and Christians. Much theological thinking begins not in our libraries and studies, but in relationships with people of other faiths where we learn to speak and listen anew within earshot of one another, as Smith did in Lahore. There are many initiatives today where these new relationships are being deliberately constructed. Let me give you an example. On March 31st of this year, in America's heartland in Omaha, Nebraska, a tri-faith initiative of Temple Israel, the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska, and the American Institute of Islamic Studies met for a dinner in what they called the Tent of Abraham. On a single plot of land, they aimed to create an interfaith campus with their three houses of worship, a synagogue, a church, and a mosque. And they committed themselves that day to grow together, to live both our differences and our similarities, as they put it, and giving national attention to the whole event was the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Catherine Jeffers Shorey, the past president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, Peter Knoble, and the president of the Islamic Society of North America, Ingrid Matson. They were there, as they put it, to support the witness that is happening in this very place. This is a journey of passage, they said, from the sense that we can get along alone to the prospect of going it together. Now, I cite this as a more deliberate and institutional instance of a Christian-Jewish-Muslim intentional relationship that is developing literally across the United States and in other parts of the world as well. Projects in America like the Daughters of Abraham Book Club, the Abraham Salons, the Tent of Abraham Initiative, and Abraham's Table in New Jersey, a series of luncheons convened by a Muslim group that is inspired by the leadership of the Turkish visionary Fethullah Gulen, whose movement has created interfaith dialogue initiatives around the world. Dialogue began at quite a different level when Jews and Christians and Muslims came together in 2006 in Indianapolis, in Indiana, to build a Habitat for Humanity house. Theirs was a kind of on-the-ground dialogue, uh, an on-the-ground dialogue that consisted of hammers and nails and coffee breaks and sandwich lunches and exhausting days working side by side to build a home for a family in need, which they called the House of Abraham. They built another in 2007, another in 2008, and by 2009, they all traveled together to build a house in Amman, Jordan. They described their work as, quote, building walls to tear walls down. These are just a few examples of a vast number of Abrahamic dialogues, and I'm sure you can amplify this from your own experience. This monotheistic encounter of those with a common ancestor in Abraham, either through Isaac or through Ishmael, may well provide a sense of kinship that makes dialogue easier, but very rarely do they actually talk about Abraham. And being of one supposed Abrahamic stock is not without its real problems, as you can imagine. The histories of these three traditions are intertwined in complex ways. Jews and Christians and the heritage of the Holocaust, Muslims, Christians, and Jews and the turbulent tragedies of Israel and Palestine. The ebb and flow of relationship is pegged often to the difficult political and ethical issues of our time in each region, in each moment. Even so, if one were to gauge the level of so-called Abrahamic engagement and dialogue, it probably is higher, probably filled with more inherent tension, and probably deeper than any other. This is an important seedbed from which new relationship and new theological views of the other, new articulations of who we are, uh, drawing on our own language of faith and our own tradition as we encounter the other.
In our relations with one another, I, as a Christian, might turn to the Gospels anew, discover that this good news is not, in the first instance, about ideas or dogmas. It is about relationships. Relationships that transcend boundaries of tradition and ethnicity and social standing. It's even about transgressing those boundaries and restrictions and legalistic constructs of our own tradition, just as Jesus did, to reach out not only to neighbors but also to strangers and even to enemies. In my book, Encountering God, I actually explore how some of my encounters with people of other faiths have reshaped my own understanding as a Christian. Or a Jewish thinker like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs here in Britain might draw upon the resources and inspiration of the Exodus and the lessons that those who were strangers in an alien land learn about how to regard strangers within our gates. In his book, The Dignity of Difference, he writes, can we recognize God's image in the one who is not in my image? Can we recognize God in the face of the stranger in this global age which has turned us into a society of strangers? Can I, as a Jew, hear the echoes of God's voice in that of a Hindu or a Sikh or a Christian or a Muslim? Can I do so and not feel diminished but enlarged. A Muslim might turn to the Muslim doctrine of Tawheed, the oneness of God. How does the Quranic revelation of God's oneness shape our understanding of the diversity of humanity? As Tariq Ramadan put it, Tawheed is the principle on which the whole of Islamic teaching rests. It's the axis and point of reference on which Muslims rely in dialogue with people of other faiths. The intimate awareness of God's oneness forms the perception of the believer who understands that plurality has been chosen by the one, that he is the God of all beings, and that he requires that each be respected. It's out of this conviction that Muslims engage in dialogue. Now, it goes without saying that here we are not in the realm of the civic questions we discussed last week to be taken up by mayors and legislators, but we are in a realm that cannot be referred simply to our national constitutions or our charters, but only by referring to the fundaments of our faith. Thinking about these questions in the language of faith, giving voice to them in the language of faith, is one of the tasks of people of faith today. How should we, as Christians, Jews, Muslims, regard the diversity of religion? What in my faith gives guidance for this? Are all religions equally true? Mine truer than the others? Mine more complete? Mine true, the others false? All of these are in the realm of theological questioning, simply, very simply put. And of course, there are exclusivists in every religious tradition, some who are quietly, simply, deeply entrenched in their own religious faith, not too much bothered by the religious other. But the exclusivist voices that we know best are the extremist voices of exclusive fundamentalism and religious chauvinism, whose insistence on claiming God's favor, claiming God's land, knowing God's will or knowing the sole way to heaven is marked by a kind of certainty and clarity. Religious difference in that case is interpreted as a threat, as a matter on which God has already revealed to us a conclusive answer. And exclusivists are, for the most part, not really very dialogically engaged with those who differ from them. And as we know, that exclusive certainty is brought to bear in theological disputes within our own traditions. Disputation within long has claimed the energies of Christians, Jews, and Muslims alike. But there are also, in every tradition, those who see religious division as an urgent planetary issue. Those who see difference as an opportunity to expand and explore and deepen one's faith, and for whom the theological exploration of religious pluralism is an urgent calling. These are pioneering voices that don't, on the most part, make the headlines, but they are the voices we need to hear 
in the age of pluralism as we search for intellectual and spiritual and theological leadership. As Abraham Joshua Heschel put it at the beginning of the 1960s, parochialism has become untenable. The religions of the world are no more self-sufficient, no more self-sufficient than individuals or nations. The energies, experiences, and ideas that come to life outside the boundaries of a particular religion or all religions continue to challenge and affect us all. Horizons are wider, dangers are greater. No religion is an island. We are all involved with one another." End quote. One of the striking realities is really the number of Christian, Jewish, and Muslim thinkers and theologians who are addressing this challenge today. We don't hear their voices as widely. They are not amplified as newsworthy, but they are going about the task of renewing religious thought in our time and creating an intellectual and theological seedbed in the age of pluralism. So let me highlight some of these movements and voices, mainly Christian and Muslim, as time permits. First, Christian thinking. And let me take a running start from way back here in an earlier moment in Christian theological thinking about the religious other, especially in light of our locus here in Edinburgh, the site of the 1910 World Missionary Conference. The watchword that comes most immediately to mind is that of John R. Mott, the conference chairman, the evangelization of the world in our generation. Edinburgh 1910 was seen by many as representing the kind of Christian triumphalism that traveled in the entourage of empire. Now that's putting a complex matter too simply. But missionaries came to Edinburgh from their postings all over the world. The American magazine, The Christian Century, began its article about the biggest thing that ever struck Scotland, said my Edinburgh host as we sat together in his drawing room, talking over the conference which has brought me to his city on account of which a thousand Edinburgh homes have been thrown open to entertain delegates from all parts of the earth. Enumerating the great personalities who were there, the author called it an unparalleled confl confluence of the big men of the kingdom of God. There was a kind of globalism articulated there, to be sure, and in summing up the conference, Mr. Gardner, writing an introduction to the proceedings, put it this way. He evoked the vision of a one world knit together more closely than ever before. Listen to his words. A vision of Earth, known as a unit in this our day, every day more and more closely and organically knit by the nerves of electric cable and telegraphic wire, more richly fed by the arteries and veins of railway lines and steamship ocean way, one nation in extremist orient thrilling at the words of some orator at the farthest sun setting, almost as they drop from his lips, so that the earth's inhabitants, for all the differences of tribe and race, become more convinced of the unity of their humanity, one world waiting, surely, for those who will carry to it and place in its empty hands one faith the only thing that can ever truly and fundamentally unite it or deeply and truly satisfy it. Bringing to one human race, into one Catholic church, through the message of the one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. A heady vision, to be sure. The note that sounded amiss, however, was the part about the empty hands the whole world waiting for the gospel to be placed in its empty hands. Actually, this wasn't really the testimony of many of the missionaries who came to Edinburgh in 1910, who had been polled in advance about their encounter with the faith of those among whom they worked. They did not find the hands of those with whom they worked empty at all. Commission 4 had done extensive preparatory work the missionary message in relation to non-Christian religions, it was called. Missionaries based in Africa, in Asia, the Pacific, were asked to respond to questions aimed at gleaning their expert on-the-ground reflections on Christianity in relation to the people of faith among whom they lived. Kenneth Cracknell, a Methodist scholar who has looked closely at these papers themselves, preserved, by the way, in only four carbon copies in the archives, has compiled much of what they've written in his remarkable book, Justice, Courtesy, and Love, 
Theologians and Missionaries Encountering World Religions, 1846 to 1914. Cracknell writes that in response to this questionnaire, responses came in with rare postage stamps from all over the world, indeed some from some of the most isolated post offices on the face of the earth, from Allahabad and Wazirabad, from Peking and Shanghai, Sierra Leone and Cairo. Cracknell writes, in those pages, the main concern is with the beginning of interreligious understanding and with those who began to work out new patterns of Christian theology with which might, one might more adequately reflect the activity of God in the face of a faith of other men and women. Cracknell insists, their authors are people who deserve to be rescued from oblivion. More than that, their comments and insights have intrinsic value because they still speak to contemporary Christians locked in the same conflicts about the uniqueness, finality, and unsurpassability of Christian revelation. The practical experience, he writes, of encounter and dialogue runs through these pages. These extraordinary documents testify over and over to the importance of a sympathetic and reverent attitude toward the faith of those among whom they worked, treating them as, quote, genuine fellow pilgrims who have much to learn from each other. One missionary quoted Max Müller, other religions are languages in which God has spoken to man and man to God, he said. C.T. Wong in China wrote, great leaders of all other religions must have been sent by God also for certain purposes. That they were men with a mission from God cannot be denied. After 28 years in India, Edwin Greaves wrote from Benares, I have learned to accept more fully the fact that God has been operative in the whole of history and that God has spoken in other ages and in other lands. The overwhelming sense of these questionnaires was not only that we have an obligation to learn and understand more than we do, but also that other traditions have a great deal to teach us, that the study of comparative religion must be part of theological education. To be sure, there were those who also thought of the religions of those among whom they worked as a kind of preparatio evangelico, a preparation for the gospel. On the whole, however, there were even more who saw these other religious ways and paths as having their own integrity. Words like, words like pluralism and interreligious dialogue were not part of the lexicon, but the mutuality, the intellectual and spiritual seriousness of the encounter came through time and again. There was a kind of theology of pluralism in Edinburgh, 1910. Since then, of course, we've had a century of a growing body of Christian theological thinking, a theology of pluralism that grows from the roots up, so to speak. And over these same years, the mission movement took very, two very different turns from Edinburgh, one in the International Missionary Council, created in 1921, which eventually became part of the World Council of Churches in 1961 at its assembly in New Delhi. And it became the World Conference on World Mission and Evangelism. It's a movement that has taken all the churches into difficult dialogues with each other and into the wide work of interfaith dialogue. Coming from over 110 countries, they have asked what should be the relationship of Christians and people of other faiths in this age? What is the relation of dialogue and the mission of the church? Some insisted that it's the mission of the church to be in dialogue today. In a conference in San Antonio, Texas in 1989, when the World Council of Churches met, they were questioned and thought deeply about the question of God's saving presence in other religious faiths. They said, we cannot point, we cannot point, probably more adequately, to any other salvation, any other way of salvation than Jesus Christ. At the same time, we cannot set limits to the saving power of God. It is this humility that enables us to say, they said, that salvation belongs to God, God only. We do not possess salvation, we participate in it. We do not offer salvation, we witness to it. We do not decide who would be saved, we leave that to the providence of God. 
And meanwhile, another movement, uh, the Lausanne movement, grounded in a biblical theology that rejects the possibility of genuine salvation outside the one way of Christ and the Christian faith, it also has continued to meet, articulating a theology that speaks of the unreached millions who without Christ cannot be saved. Both are powerful movements, and both actually will observe the centennial of that Edinburgh 1910 next year uh, in Edinburgh and for the Lausanne Conference in South Africa. Now, I want to dwell for just a moment here on this mega level, this global level where entire world bodies are wrestling with issues of pluralism, looking especially at the World Council of Churches, the Vatican, the global Muslim movement called the Common Word. This is the big picture as we look at Christians and Muslims approaching these issues, wrestling with them, coming back to them, approaching each other, meeting again. Make no mistake, this is not about institutional religion, but about new workshops of consultation where some very hard theological work has been going on. And let me begin with the World Council of Churches, which for over four decades has been working to develop a theological understanding, not just a justice understanding, but a theological understanding of religious difference in a globalizing age. Christian thinkers from Sri Lanka, Korea, India, Britain, America, all working together as theologians, have said that the changes of our time, quote, require us to be more attentive to our relationship with other religious communities. That we are challenged, they write, to develop a spiritual climate and theological approach that contributes to the creative and positive relationships among the religious traditions of the world. Now, this is serious business, to develop a spiritual climate that contributes to positive relations among people of different religions. So what do they focus on if this is what they're trying to do? And let me just highlight a few words. First, a pretty safe word to highlight, and that is the word mystery. The mystery of God's relation to all people and the many ways in which peoples have responded to this mystery. That invites us to explore more fully the reality of other religious traditions and our own identity as Christians. God as creator, they emphasize. The starting point for Christians is there. The conviction that God is creator of all is present and active in the plurality of religions makes it inconceivable to us that God's saving activity could be confined to any one continent, cultural type, or group of people. Inconceivable that salvation could belong only to Christians. The hospitality of Christ, another emphasis, and I quote, it is not limited to those in our community, but extends, as did the hospitality of Christ, to the stranger, the outsider, it involves the kind of self-emptying and receiving others in unconditional love, even our enemies. Our willingness to accept others in their otherness is the hallmark of that hospitality. Through our openness to the other, we may encounter God in new ways. Hospitality is thus both the fulfillment of the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves and an opportunity to discover God anew. And, of course, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the spirit that moved over the face of the deep in the beginning. We discern the Spirit of God, they said, moving in ways we cannot predict. We see the nurturing power of the Spirit working within, inspiring human beings in their universal longing for truth and peace and justice. We believe, they say, that this encompassing work of the Holy Spirit is also present in the life and traditions of people of living faiths. Now, most of us, I would say, do not frequent the web pages of the World Council of Churches for our theological guidance. On the other hand, perhaps we should. What is important is precisely that these are produced from a workshop of Christians from around the world, coming at the question of religious pluralism with a kind of theological rigor, biblical faith, and contextual experience, especially in a world in which Christians don't have much guidance for thinking about these issues at all, or simply presume 
that the Christian tradition has discovered the only way with a few biblical verses to prove it, or in a world in which many Christians have long since given up on Christianity, or at least on the Christianity they thought they knew. Now let me turn for a moment to the global Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. It does have a visible leader, a very visible leader in uh, the Pope, and this was especially so during the reign of Pope John Paul II. Building on the 1960s heritage of Vatican II and its declaration on non-Christians called Nostra Aetate in our time, this Pope put into practice what for Roman Catholics was a new approach to other religions. Considering his papacy as an historian of religion, I think that his speeches and statements, along with the work, the hard work of the Pontifical Council on Interreligious Relations that supported him, and his dialogues with people of other faiths, constitute a legacy that is virtually unprecedented in the history of the papacy. Indeed, no other religious leader of such visibility, save the Dalai Lama, uh, has made interfaith relations such a clear priority. The Pope's initiatives, like the gathering of religious leaders to pray at Assisi in 1986, place the force of the papacy behind a fragile global interfaith movement badly in need of allies, powerful allies. Let me just give you a quick overview of events and images that shaped the more than quarter of a century of his papacy. He became the first pope to visit Auschwitz, 1979. The first to visit a synagogue ever when he went to the synagogue in Rome in 1986. Early in his papacy in 1985, Pope John Paul II spoke to 80,000 Muslim young people in a stadium in Morocco. He said, I believe that God invites us to change our old practices. We must respect each other. We also must stimulate each other in good works on the path of God. Christians and Muslims, he said, have badly understood each other, have opposed each other, exhausted each other in polemics and wars. And he concluded, dialogue between Christians and Muslims is today more necessary than ever. Toward the end of his papacy, he became the first pope ever to visit Egypt. Again, the images were conveyed around the world. The pope was greeted by a long line of Muslim clerics on his way to visit Sheikh Tantawi at Al-Azhar University. And during his tenure, a permanent yearly meeting was established between the Pontifical Council on Interreligious Relations and the Muslim scholars of Al-Azhar. Traveling on to St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai, John Paul II observed the dry wind coming down from the mountain and commented, that wind carries the insistent invitation to dialogue between the followers of the great monotheistic religions. In 2000, he made a visible papal repentance for the Holocaust. Who can forget the images of the Pope on his knees on the floor of St. Peter's Basilica, beginning the Lenten season with prayers, for those who, whose disobedience, as he put it, contradicts the faith we profess. Later that spring, in March of 2000, we saw the images of an enfeebled pope at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust memorial in Jerusalem, rising slowly from his chair to approach the Holocaust survivors who met him there. He deliberately stood and moved toward them rather than letting them come to him as if to say, I take the initiative, I come to you whom we have wronged. Of course, there are many Roman Catholics who felt that this pope was far more open to other faiths than to those who were eager for change within Catholicism, and that's probably true. Again, the internal dialogue is often perceived as more difficult, more contentious, and certainly more like the arguments we have within our families. Now let me turn to Muslim initiatives. Because Muslims, too, have been engaged in far-reaching work of thinking theologically about religious differences and religious commonality. Islam is as broad and diverse as Christianity. There is no pope, nor are there representative bodies like the World Council of Churches. Even so, there are major Islamic institutions like Al-Azhar in Cairo, the Islamic Call Society, the World Muslim League, so it was a profoundly important moment when, nearly two years ago, 
138 Muslim clerics brought together by what has been called the Amman Initiative wrote a joint letter to Christian churches. For those who have taken the outreach of dialogue to be a particularly Christian affair, here was outreach in the other direction. Muslim leaders from across the whole spectrum of Islam, Sunni and Shia, Salafi and Sufi, from Nigeria to Uzbekistan, from Indonesia to Canada, wrote to the Christian world in what they called a common word between us and you. It was addressed to leaders of Christian churches, but in a sense to everyone who is a Christian. It was an unprecedented move, boldly reaching out to Christians in a world in which mutual negative stereotypes of one another are common and reaching out together as Muslims in a world in which Muslim ecumenism is relatively new. The Muslim letter began, Muslims and Christians together make up well over half the world's population. Without peace and justice between these two religious communities, there can be no meaningful peace in the world. The basis for this peace and understanding already exists. It is part of the very foundational principles of both of our faiths. The love of the one God and the love of neighbor. These principles are found over and over in the sacred texts of Islam and Christianity, end quote. And then the letter recognizes in quite some length, really, how important the love of God and love of neighbor is for Christians and emphasizes this in the Quran as well. Quote, God says in the Holy Quran, so invoke the name of thy Lord and devote thyself to him with complete devotion. And of the necessity of love of neighbor, the prophet Muhammad has said, none of you has faith until you love for your neighbor what you love for yourself. Thus, in obedience to the Holy Quran, they wrote, we as Muslims invite Christians to come together with us on the basis of what is common to us, which is also what is most essential to our faith and practice, the two commandments of love. And these two commandments are not footnotes or sidebars in the theological thought and life of Islam and Christianity. These lie at the heart of both communities. Without minimizing the very real differences between Islam and Christianity, there is much common ground. And finding this, they say, is, quote, not simply a matter for polite ecumenical dialogue between selected religious leaders, but our common future, our very survival is at stake. And the letter closes by underlining this sense of urgency. The Muslim writers acknowledge the violence that has exploded within their own tradition. And we, of course, recognize it in ours as well. They speak of, quote, those who nevertheless relish conflict and destruction for their own sake or reckon that ultimately they stand to gain from them. To them we say, our eternal souls are also at stake if we fail sincerely to make every effort, every effort to make peace and come together in harmony. Now, when we receive a letter of such deep significance, we must respond, and it's not surprising that this letter has elicited a vast number of responses from Christians, also from Jews and other Muslims. You can find them on www.commonword.org if you want to look them all up. There are some from here in Edinburgh, including, I think, one from Bishop Brian Smith. Uh, there are responses from all over England, and church-wide responses, of course, take longer, but there has now been an ecumenical response from the National Council of Churches of Christ in the U.S., representing a wide spectrum of Protestant and Orthodox churches. And speaking now, both as a Christian and as someone who was involved in that process through four difficult drafts, it was difficult and prayerful work. There can be no doubt that the importance of a response, a collective response from the churches of America is significant because Muslims around the world have felt that respect for Islam has been assaulted by a growing American Islamophobia. The National Council of Churches letter in response also underlines the urgent necessity of moving beyond polite conversation to deeper relations as neighbors. 
in a world that is plagued by violence and poverty. Indeed, our very souls are at stake. Of course, we as Christians have our particular ways in which we speak of the one God, including the reconciling presence and call of Christ as, uh, uh, as one who calls us to engagement with the world in which we live, and the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us new things about God and ourselves. And the letter says, and I quote, so together Christian, Christians and Muslims must ask the questions that lead us deeper. What does it mean to respond to God's love in a world of suffering, strife, and division? Who is our neighbor in a world in which Christians, Muslims, people of other faiths, and secular people live together in the same societies? In a world of deep and fracturing differences, of majorities and minorities, and of urgent human needs, how do we respond to the obligation to love our neighbor? And in the U.S., we actually have a Christian-Muslim dialogue table between the Islamic Society of North America and the National Council of Churches specifically to work on these issues. But this call to relationship building uh, and profound theological work is important, especially in a world in which religious truth claims often divide us these letters stake out common ground where our truth claims unite us at the very core of our faith. And building on this common ground, rather than focusing on theologies and politics that divide us, provides a way ahead for Muslims and Christians in a deeply fractured world. Alas, again, these letters back and forth do not make front page news, but they are the kind of news that will begin to reshape relationships between the two largest and most widespread traditions on earth. When Wilfred Cantwell Smith challenged the divinity faculty with the question of religious pluralism in 1961, there were few theologians about the task. Now, some 50 years later, there are many. There are Catholics at work on these issues from Raimundo Panikar to uh, Jacques Dupuy, South Asian Protestants, from D.T. Niles to Wesley Arya There are British thinkers like John Hick, whose pluralist hypothesis was one that he developed in these Gifford lectures in 1986-1987. And this has also become an evangelical issue. And as one might imagine, with that spirit blows where it wills kind of theology, a Pentecostal issue. Even the many resistances to pluralism from conservative Christian thinkers make clear that this is the challenge of the age, no matter how they come down on it. From now on, as Wilfred Cantwell Smith put it, this will not go away. Now I want to turn as we close to some Muslim thinkers who have, as individual thinkers, made some progress in thinking about Islam in this age of pluralism. The Muslim world does not acknowledge a set of leaders whose very offices, like popes or archbishops, give them the authority of interpretation. But there are many interpreters, thinkers who are about the work of interpreting the faith for today. Most non-Muslims do not hear their voices above the din created by other Muslim voices, largely extremist, clamoring for public attention. But what do these Muslim thinkers have to say? What are some of the issues they speak of as they speak and write in this age of pluralism? Perhaps we should begin with the South African Farid Isak, who entitles one of his books, Islam and Pluralism. He begins with a critical, perhaps the critical, interpretive issue. Quote, belief in the eternal relevance of the Quran, he writes, is not the same as belief in a text which is timeless and groundless spaceless. In order to relate Quranic meaning to the South African crucible, we were compelled to relate it from some historical moment." End quote. We have to consider the historical moment at which a verse was first heard, was revealed. And then we have to consider the historical moment today in which we try to understand it. Isaac cites a seventh century dispute in which one of the parties put it precisely. This is the Quran, written in straight lines, 
between two boards of its binding. It does not speak with a tongue. It needs interpreters, and interpreters are people. Similarly, Khalid Abu el-Fadl, professor of Islamic law, in his book, The Problem of Tolerance in Islam, insists on the contextual interpretation of the Quran against those who would cite this verse or that verse as an evidence of an attitude of aggression against Christians and Jews. His language sounds almost like a Christian critique of fundamentalism when he writes, and I quote, the Puritans, the Wahhabis, construct their exclusionary and intolerant theology by reading Quranic verses in isolation, as if the meaning of these verses were transparent, as if moral ideas and historical context were irrelevant to their interpretation. Abdulaziz Sachedina at the University of Virginia puts it this way in his book, The Islamic Roots of Democratic Pluralism. Quote, the challenge for Muslims today as ever is to tap the tradition of Quranic pluralism to develop a culture of restoration of just intra-religious and inter-religious relationships in a world of cultural and religious diversity. That term, it's arresting to us, Quranic pluralism, especially for those of us who imagine Islam today as being shaped by other voices, not very pluralistic voices. But all of these interpreters lift up this tradition of Quranic pluralism, where religious diversity is clearly part of the divine plan, where a prominent place is given to Jews and Christians as people of the book, just a few of them. O humankind, we have created you male and female and made you into communities and tribes so that you may know each other. If God had willed, he would have made you into one community. But things are as they are to test you in what he has given you. So compete with each other in doing good. Muslim scholars like Sachedina and Ali Asani and Ismaili at Harvard speak of the inherent pluralism of the Quran. And they also expose the strategies by which extremist and exclusivist Muslim exegetes declared this pluralism to be abrogated by other verses that call for aggression against the infidel. Listening to this, this interpretive argument, following it as Christians, uh, listening to the argument among Muslims helps all of us see more clearly the distinctive shape of our own interpretive arguments with our own sense of revelation. And let me turn finally to Tariq Ramadan, the Muslim theologian and ethicist here in Britain, a fellow of St. Andrew's College, Swiss in origin, Egyptian in ancestry. In his recent book, Radical Reform, he addresses Muslims on the question of the Quran. Reform, he said, is not a challenge to the Quran as divine revelation. No, real reform must begin by recognizing that the Quran as divine revelation still requires our intelligence. It requires the exacting tasks of contextual and historical and changing interpretations. What is critical is, quote, the reform of our reading and understanding. It means looking deeply into the contextual interpretation of the Quran so that, as he puts it, we are not submerged by unreflective literalism. And Ramadan also reminds Muslims of something else, that the world, the earth, with all its complexity, also constitutes, in Islamic understanding, a revelation. It requires also our intelligence to read and understand this earth. That means using the full capacity of the mind to read and understand the worlds of physics and astronomy. It also means using that full intelligence of the mind to read and understand the diverse worlds of peoples and societies, religions and beliefs. In his book, Muslims, uh, Western Muslims and the Future of Islam, he writes about the challenges of pluralism. Islam is, after all, a faith Muslims consider to be universal, not for one people, but for all humankind. And given this, he writes, the issue for me is to find out how the Islamic universal 
accepts and respects pluralism and the belief of the other. It's one thing to relativize what I believe and another to respect fully the convictions of the other. The postmodern spirit would like to lead us unconsciously to confuse the second proposition with the first. I refuse. It is in the very name of the universality of my principles that my conscience is summoned to respect diversity. And this is important to hear, that the message of the Quran is universal. It is not intended for one people and nation, but for all. And Ramadan begins, as we saw earlier, with the doctrine of Tawheed, which means that understanding human plurality from the sense of God's oneness is a task for all of us. The world for Muslims today, he describes as Dar al-Shahada, the land of witness, where we as Muslims bear witness to our faith. The binary of the house of Islam, Dar al-Islam, and the house of conflict, Dar al-Arb, bears no relation, he says, to the reality of today. We cannot think of house without thinking of the world as a house, as a dwelling. Quote, our world is now, whether we like it or not, an open world. Muslims are dispersed among the continents. Their fate is concerned with that of the societies in which they live. And it is unthinkable to draw a line between them and non-Muslims only on the basis of considerations of space. In our world, we have to deal with the issues of not with the issues of two houses, Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Arab, but of one world. It is rather a case of relations between human beings belonging to identifying themselves with various civilizations, religions, and cultures. It is also a question of relations between citizens in constant interaction with the social, legal, economic, and political framework that forms and directs the space in which they live. Today, these Muslim moves, such as those toward which I've pointed, moves that begin to articulate an understanding of Islam in the age of pluralism, in the terms of Islam, these kinds of moves and writings can gain traction not only because they have publishers and a readership, but also increasingly through the discursive space of the internet that allows an open circulation of ideas across the world. Just as radical extremist voices have made good use of modern telecommunications, so have these voices that some would call progressive or liberal. They are voices that circulate and gain influence quite outside traditional channels of authority. Now let me conclude by saying that all our faith traditions, all of us increasingly, reflect on our own faith in the light of the other. We can do no other, really, in an age in which we encounter so many others. To do this, however, we need to stop talking. We need to pause, to cultivate what the American theorist William Connolly calls a stutter in one's own faith, a catch, a disruption that enables us to take stock of the subjectivity of a person of another faith. This is not in order to develop a new doctrine or develop a one-page agreement to sign the both of us. No, indeed, this is in the service of that basic ethical stance that takes the faith and practice of another seriously. It requires what he calls relational modesty rather than confident bravado. It requires the light recoil upon the language of one's own faith precisely to make space for the voice of the other. It is this dialogical ethic that is increasingly being practiced today, whether in the theological workshops of our academies or with the hammers and nails of the House of Abraham. There is a stutter, a moment of disruption, a reflection on our own faith that enables us to receive the subjectivity of another person. And that is the basis of dialogue. Thank you very much. And I look forward to your thoughts and questions.
Right, thank you very much. Um, are there any questions, comments? And if there are, please could you raise your hands so I can spot you, because I'm an extraordinarily myopic person. Right, thank you. Do you think it's time to readdress the soteriological exclusivity of that statement now in possibly the new development after pluralism to respond to postmodernism? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Vatican II, in the statement Nostra Aetate, that basically is a kind of inclusivist statement that uh, recognizes the holiness, as they put it, in every religious tradition. Um, there were those who wanted to go farther and say that there is, uh, there is soteri soteriological truth in other traditions. They didn't go that far. They went only so far as to say there is a kind of revelation in other traditions as well. I rather doubt, I mean, from, from what I know of the Roman Catholic Church, and perhaps you have a, a different track on things, I rather doubt that they will go that direction and that far. I mean, this was true even with John Paul II. He had a very dialogical uh, frame of mind, which at least his successor did not begin with. Uh, we're not sure how, how that will move. But, um, but he himself was rather doctrinaire uh, when it came to issues of salvation. So I, I wouldn't hold your breath for that. I agree. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed everything you said. Um, but did you agree with it? That's the question. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, yes, I agreed with uh, a very good part of what you said. And uh, my observation uh, has to do with three areas. One, as you spoke about... Uh, pluralism and the understanding of Christians and Muslims, I was waiting to hear you say something about the various interpretations and understanding of jihad by Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know that there are various schools of thought on jihad and that is one aspect of Islam that needs to be explained, especially as we navigate these discussions on pluralism. Uh, I thought it would come in your, in your, in your speech. And then um, it appears as if uh, you have given some defense to the issue of dialogue, even among Muslims, that it's not uh, a Christian uh, uh, response alone to uh, the issues of pluralism. But I want to still think that dialogue is still heavily elite, uh, uh, for elites. Uh, it does not really get to the grassroots where we have uh, differences and conflicts between uh, particularly Christians and Muslims. And I, I have uh, I, I stand to be corrected. I, I think Dialogue by Muslims is usually advocated when they are in a minority. Where you have Christian minority and Muslim majority, the Muslims don't call for dialogue. Muslims call for dialogue where they are in the minority. I want you to make a comment uh, on this. Thank you. Well, let me respond to the last part first because I think you're right to some extent about this. Although it also is true historically that in, during many of the great periods of Muslim majority rule, there have been very uh, tolerant and open regimes of, uh, I mean, I don't know if you would call them pluralism, but regimes in which religious minorities were protected far more than under most Christian empires. So it, protected isn't necessarily dialogue. I, I understand that but that there is a sense that other religious faiths that fall under the power of uh, Muslim-majority uh, tradition should be protected. Now, one could make many uh, exceptions to that today, namely Saudi Arabia, for example. But I think it is true to say that there are parts of the world, and certainly you must come from one, where the issues of dialogue have to do more with elites um, 
in terms of the kind of civility of it, and maybe less with people at the grassroots level. That's not so true where I come from, where it really is at the grassroots level in the cities and towns in America that people are beginning to know one another as people of faith rather than uh, simply as the stereotypes that they have been used to uh, reading about or hearing about in the media or even in some of their own preaching. So that there, the face-to-face -face encounter matters a lot. And it really is in that face-to-face uh, -face encounter that people begin to know one another personally. I think we could point to that many, many places in the world. Let me come back to your first question about jihad. That, of course, is a very contentious issue. I mean, it, there may be Muslims and Muslim scholars who have many other things to say about it, but clearly, from what I understand and from within Islam, there is a sense of the greater jihad, meaning the struggle, because it does mean struggle, within oneself, to live that life of righteousness that is prescribed by Sharia. Um, only under rare circumstances is that seen as a violent jihad against others, uh, against uh, you know, an enemy that stands in the way of, uh, of the path of faith. So the greater jihad is really that inner struggle. We had rather an extraordinary issue of this at Harvard University about five years ago when the student who had won the competition to give the commencement address was a young Muslim student of Pakistani origin who had grown up in Massachusetts. And he entitled his talk, My American Jihad. And what he meant by that was my struggle to live up to the things that I believe in my heart as a Muslim, that my community believes, that path that uh, is affirmed to be the path of, of righteousness and submission to God. And of course, there are many people who went ballistic over this. They felt that, you know, we can't be having a talk in our commencement with all of these, uh, especially the Jewish communities, we're very upset by it, uh, with this notion of jihad out there on the program. And uh, so it was enormous controversy even before the talk was given. But the talk was really about that uh, sense of the greater jihad. And I think you would find almost any Muslim would be able to articulate that difference between them. Thank you I for those thinking, questions. I was thinking of the um, probing the same kind of area, the same kind yes. of territory. Um, and especially taking at, at uh, if you like, elite Muslim thinking, because you know, you've conceded in a mm -hmm. sense that that's where a lot of the evidence lies. If you take the last five decades, would you say that the tendency at that level, that intellectual level among that grouping, has been towards plurality or against, or is the, the, the situation over time in terms of different intellectual flows more complicated than either of those two, two polarities? Well, I think it's probably more complicated than either, but I would say if you were to compare the level of Islamic discourse about Islam and pluralism, Islam and democracy, and of course a lot of that is interwoven together, today with 50 years ago, there is a huge amount of Muslim writing about Islam and diversity, Islam and pluralism, Islam and democracy today, and probably there was very, very little at least in English languages, European languages, um, 50 years ago. It also is true that the level of it, the sort of heat of Islamic discourse among Muslims is also quite a lot higher. And there are many of these groups that are now linked to the Islamic Brotherhood and whatnot are also very vocal and very, um, very strong, so and the, they've the, grown too. The Islamic noise of whatever. The Islamic level, noise Islam. in general yeah. has increased. I think that's true. And the dialogical noise has increased, just as it has in Christianity. Is there a final question? Yes. Um, uh, this is one of our students from Harvard who's here for the semester. I'm um, So. Inherently, the right place to come to. Yeah. 
In what you were saying, there's sort of a disconnect between the theoretical sort of ideas of pluralism that are being talked about in the Islamic community and sort of what people hear about on the ground. You know, it's yes. not sort of what's publicized. Um, and that seems like that's sort of the sticking point to pluralism is if people don't know that these ideas exist, then you can't really act on pluralism. So do you see sort of any hope in the near future that these ideas will become accessible, people will realize that they're out there, or do you think, you know, only in talks like this is it possible sort of to, you know, is there any effort being made to sort of publicize these ideas by the people that are thinking them and sort of making them widespread? What a good question, because I, I mean, part of the reason that I do focus on this is that I, I feel that violence and fundamentalism are two things that get a lot of study and a lot of press even among academics, there, I mean, religious violence is a very, very sexy thing to study these days. And where people are trying to cooperate with each other and create new ways of thinking and being in relation to each other, um, you know, there's a little bit of a ho-hum attitude. And certainly, the newspapers don't go out to tell their reporters uh, to give us a good story about how people are cooperating with each other and breaking new ground. It's just not, you know, if it, if it uh, bleeds, it leads kind of thing. But I do think, I have a great deal of hope with this. I have a lot of hope in people of your generation, for example, uh, that the level of uh, comfort, so to speak, with the religious other is much, uh, much more natural. I mean, I'm thinking now, Marav is part of the Hillel uh, Jewish community at Harvard. And over these last few years, as you know, the uh, period of Ramadan and the period of the Jewish High Holy Days have sort of coincided. And so there have been all these remarkable things that have involved not a few students, where uh, the fast at Yom Kippur has been broken uh, simultaneously with the breaking of the Islamic fast, and the Muslim and Jewish groups have come together to have a fast-breaking meal at the end of this. Or because the festival of Sukkot was following close on. There were several of these uh, sort of uh, Ramadan uh, iftars in the sukkah, the fast-breaking meal in the sukkah at the end of a day of Islamic fasting. Now, these are things that I have to say were, would have been unheard of even 10 years ago in our university. And yet, these are things that are happening I mean, they, w they won't happen again for a while because of the, the way that the lunar calendars work, but they are happening. And the more we know about them, the greater the hope that is in our hearts. Uh, and I think we do need, partly, to make a, a real point of knowing about them. So I thank you for that question. Thank you, and uh, thank you for your questions and comments. And can I, on, on your behalf, uh, thank our distinguished lecturer uh, tonight. You. Um, it was a presentation which uh, was fluent, it was clear, it was cogent, it was delivered with great passion. The Gifford Lecturing Committee only invite people of world standing to address these audiences, and we've had that standing confirmed tonight by Professor Eck. Please would you join me in thanking her for her presentation. <laughs> This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.